one, one sin is unforgivable. Yeah, you say, buddy, I, I, I thought this series was about headline good news, about, about Jesus coming to bring us good news. And now you tell me there is such a thing as a sin that cannot be forgiven. Listen to me. I'm not the only one saying that to you. Jesus said that. Listen to Mark 3, verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. That's a shocking verse. I've been reading a lot about that this week. One author says, the first time you hear that verse, you never forget the moment. It's like the assassination of JFK or, or, or 9-11. You remember exactly where you were when you all of a sudden ran across this verse in the middle of the good news of Jesus Christ, that there is a sin that is unforgivable. One author says, pound for pound, this verse has brought more guilt to people than any other verse in all of the Bible. And, and so we listen to this verse and we begin to ask the question, well, well what is it? I mean, how, how do you sin against the Holy Spirit? How do you sin this eternal, unforgivable sin? I mean, some people try to say it's murder. Some people try to say adultery. When it comes to acts, probably more people than not have said it was suicide. What is it? But even more than what is it, have I accomplished it? You know, I, I do get to talk to people periodically who come and they're, they're all worried. Because, you know, they read this verse and they think, well, my goodness, maybe I did it. Then they read the context here and they think, well, in that moment when I was really frustrated with God and I just gave up on God, was that it? And that moment where I literally went out my backyard and I shook my fist at God because what had happened in my life, in that moment when I cursed Him, is that it? Is there forgiveness? But what is it? Well, let's dive right into our passage. We're going to see a few things happen in context. First of all, we're going to see that the crowds are out of control. Then we're going to see Jesus' families out to rescue him. And then we're also going to see here that the powerful are out to stop him. And that's where this sin happens. And Jesus says those words. Look in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 as we look at this story. Then Jesus entered a house. And again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. You know, we saw last week that the crowds are pressing against him. There's so many people that there's a danger of them trampling over Jesus. And, and this week we see the crowds are, are pushing in and his time is so busy. He's not even able to eat. Listen to me. The world has never seen anyone like this and the reaction has never been like this here's a man who heals disease who cast out demons who forgives sins i mean it's amazing and the crowds are flocking to him and it's really about out of control and that's why the next point is important the family was out to rescue him when his family heard about this they went to take charge of him Literally, the word there to take charge means they went to take custody of him. They're going to rescue him for they said he is out of his mind. And that's sort of shocking there. Mark chapter 3, his own family thinks he's gone crazy. But for a moment, would you put yourself in their place? I mean, they're hearing all these rumors. Jesus has ticked off all the authorities. 
From the most conservative to the liberal, they hate him. And they even are out to kill him. I mean, they've heard these rumors that the crowds are pressing in on him and he may be trampled, that he's not been taken in the mills, and they're afraid. And we also need to give them a little credit here. Possibly, they've not seen the miracles that everybody else has seen. We know that Jesus would do no miracles in his hometown of Nazareth because of the people's lack of faith. So maybe, just maybe, his brothers, his half-brothers have not seen this. We, we know from the Gospel of John that they don't believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Not in John chapter 7, verse 5. Not until after the resurrection did Jesus' brothers come to faith. In fact, one of his brothers, James, begins to be one of the great leaders of the early church. But at this point, they've not seen it. They're hearing these awful rumors. And let's be honest, they probably always thought Jesus was a little weird, don't you think? I mean, can you imagine growing up in a family with a kid that was perfect? I mean, can, can, can you imagine, you know, that, that Jesus is always you know, doing the right thing? And then you've got to imagine if there were these awkward moments around the table when, when Jesus revealed a little bit about who he was. Hi, guys. I, I know you're enjoying the meal, but before we eat dessert, I'd just sort of like to tell you guys that I'm God. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine? You know, I see two brothers in our audience this morning. You know, Scott, you're the older brother. I can imagine at the Tarot supper table one night, if you announce in front of all the rest of them, you know, guys, great eating supper's a family tonight, but I just would like to let you guys know that I am God, and your eternal destiny will depend on how you respond to me. Scott, what would have they done to you? You wouldn't be here today if you'd said that. I doubt it. I think about some of our folks in Birmingham. I think about Wes Self, who's an older brother for uh, two brothers himself. And if Wes goes in one day, you know, in front of his younger brothers and says, Guys, you know what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God but by me. I mean, they already think he's weird. They've already heard these claims. And now they're hearing all these rumors. And he may get killed. And so, of course, they're coming to get him. To rescue him. To claim him. And in the midst of this, the powerful are out to stop him. And the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He's possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of the demons. He's driving out demons. Now listen, this thing has gotten so out of hand that the authorities are so afraid of Jesus' power that the big dogs from Jerusalem come down. And and they know they've got to stop this thing. And so they make this crazy charge that he's possessed by Beelzebub. That was a name in that day for Satan, for the devil. And he's casting out demons. And he is possessed as a demon. Now why do they say that? That's a pretty crazy charge. Well, let's just notice something. They got a problem here. They cannot dispute the evidence. The evidence is overwhelming. Do you notice? They don't come in and say, he really can't do miracles. They don't come in like we might, you know, and do an investigation of of some of the public faith healers, you know, who've been proven to be fake and orchestrated and they're not miracles of the New Testament caliber. They don't come in like we would do and launch a 2020 investigation and go, it's not true. I mean, you know, you heard about this, but the guy with the withered hand, that was fake. Or the guy that resurrected from the dead, he really wasn't dead. Or the demons, they can't do that. 
The evidence is too overwhelming. They've got a problem. The evidence is on Jesus' side. So what's their answer? Okay, if he's got that kind of power, the answer is we're going to attribute his power to Satan. Yes, he's done it. We can't dispute it. But here's what we can do. He's not doing this from God. He's doing this from the devil. They can't say he's crazy like his family says because his logic is crystal clear. He's nailed these dudes over and over again. His teaching is incredible. So they can't say he's crazy. But they can say he's evil. So, what does Jesus do? Jesus sets out to shake them up. You understand this. Just a few verses earlier, at the healing on the Sabbath, he's already angry. What's he angry about? He's angry at their stubborn hearts. And now here they see it again. He's cast out a demon. They know he's done it. And so they come up with this trumped up crazy charge is he must be empowered by the devil. He's evil. So listen to Jesus. Verse 23. I love this. So Jesus called them over to him. Wouldn't you love to see this scene? Hey, hey guys, would you come over here a minute? I need to talk to you. I heard, I heard what you said about me. And I'd, I'd like to clear this up. If we could just have a moment together. And then Jesus gave them two quick little parables, stories. How can Satan drive out Satan? If the kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and he is divided, he cannot stand for his end has come. Jesus says what you just said is logically absurd. What you've said is, Satan is casting out Satan. Why would he do that? He's working against himself. That's what you're telling me? And guys, we understand that. We understand that in all kinds of area of life. It wouldn't make sense. If you're in business, you don't work against yourself. If you work for the Coca-Cola company, you don't go to the grocery stores and try to convince them to make more shelf space for the Pepsi products. You're, you're going to destroy your company. And, and Jesus says, guys, if Satan is coming here and I'm Satan, this doesn't work. And Abraham Lincoln is famous for saying a house divided against itself cannot stand. You can't be divided that way and expect things to be successful. You know, it, it's a church. You've got to be united about something. I was blessed a year ago to, to go to church out of town and, and do some consulting work with them. And the church was shrinking and having some problems. And they, they couldn't sort of figure out what was going on. So I got to interview the elders, got to interview the staff, got to interview all kinds of people. And finally, it was a rather large church. But what I finally figured out was they had a few staff members who hated large churches, who didn't believe in large churches, who actually didn't believe in church buildings. And so finally, I I went back to the elders. They said, what do you find? I said, guys, the problem is you've got a divided house. You've got a staff you're paying that's working against what you believe. They're good people. I understand even how they got where they've got. That's okay. But you don't keep them in your organization when they're actually working against what you're trying to achieve. And that's what Jesus is saying here. 
This is absurdity that Satan would come in here and Satan would try to cast out himself. You guys, you just got it wrong. And, and then he make, goes, he gives another little story. Look, look at the next story there. Then Jesus says, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. What's Jesus saying? Yeah, you've seen me do something, but understand it. Satan's not tying himself up. Satan's not plundering his own house. This is the great part of the story. What Jesus is saying is, Satan is the strong man, but I am stronger. And what you're seeing is, I have broken to his house, I have tied him up, and I am plundering his kingdom. So, he tries to motivate him with logic. And then he tries to put some fear in their souls. And this verse has put a lot of fear in our souls. Go back to verse 28. Truly I tell you, anytime Jesus says that, you know he's about to say something big time. King James Version, verily, verily, I say unto you, truly, truly, I say to you, what's he say? People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Okay, let's get into it. What is the unforgivable sin? What is Jesus talking about here? Well, he's talking about blasphemy. Now, now what is blasphemy? Blasphemy means to revile, to talk against, to slander is another word for blasphemy. Now, interesting, Mark doesn't record this. He alludes to it, but Matthew does. Matthew says, Jesus says, every sin can be forgiven you, even blaspheming against the Son of God, but this one, blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, cannot forgive, be forgiven. Now, that's what gets me confused trying to study this thing. Why is it okay to slander Jesus, and you could be forgiven of that, but it doesn't seem to be okay to slander the Holy Spirit, you can't be forgiven of that. Guys, listen to me. Blasphemy is a, it's an explosive topic. Even, even in today's world. I don't know if you read the newspaper the last couple of weeks, but a weekend ago in Pakistan, there were two Pakistani men who got in discussion. One was a Muslim, one was a Christian, and, and they got in a bad argument. And, and the Muslim man, just trying to win the argument and shut it down, said about the Christian, he's blasphemed Allah. Have you read what happened since then? A whole community of churches were burned. Stacks of Bible were burned. Christian people were ran out of their house and ransacked. It's explosive. And Jesus says, when you get to this point where you can see what you guys have seen and say Satan did it, this is explosive. This is more than explosive. This is dangerous. So what is it? Let me give you a few ideas. There's a lot of ideas out there. Some I think are good, some are not as good. Let me just give you some ideas. Number one, a lot of people say, say that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is, is only to attribute Jesus' miracles to Satan. In other words, this is a one-case moment and instant where they see Jesus do incredible miracles and they got the gall to say, Satan did it. Now, under this theory, which I would like to believe, we can't do it <laughs> because we're not there. All right. So it'd be nice to say 
This is just something that they could do who stood in front of Jesus, who actually saw the demon go out and saw the miracles and then said that. But I think there's probably something deeper than that. I think it may be more of an attitude than just a momentary sin. And that brings me to number two, which some people believe is just an unrepented of sin. Okay? I mean, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is just that sin you never repent of. You never get a chance to. You know? Uh, you walk out of here, you know, and, you know, you hit your toe and you cuss. Or you walk out of here and you speed. Or you walk out of here and you don't go to Bible class. And, uh, yeah. oh, don't you love that one? Okay. And, and, and you die and you go to hell. That, that's this theory, all right? A lot of you are in trouble. I mean, you die and you, I mean, that, that's, that's this idea. And that's why probably the most specific sin that people talk about to match this is suicide. Because what they say is suicide is murder. And if you murder yourself, obviously you don't have time to repent. Now, I don't think this is it. I mean, I, you know, I think God's grace is continual. I mean, first John 1, it continues to cleanse us of our sins. I mean, this is not the old, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. That, that, that's not a good biblical teaching. So I don't think it's just an unrepented of sin. Well, let's start getting closer to it. Number three, I think, gets us a little closer. This is what I call the end of the line, all right? The end of the line. You're rejecting the last testimony. As we think about the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you've heard me say this before, that their roles sort of line up in creation and redemption. In creation, God thinks of the idea of the Father of the world and the universe and all that exists. Jesus is actually the creator and the Holy Spirit comes and sustains the creation. Okay? That's the way they seem to three work together. In redemption, it seems to be parallel. It's the Father's idea to save the world. It's Jesus who comes in and gives his life as a ransom to save us. And then it's the Holy Spirit who comes in to continue the work of convicting and of bringing people to, to Jesus. And so this argument, which I think there's some weight to, is what makes the sin of the Holy Spirit different than sinning against the Father or against the Son, is that you have come to the end of the line. You have rejected the Father, you've rejected the Son, and now you've rejected the Holy Spirit and His work. And that brings me to number four, which I think fits into that one. It's a rejection of the convincing and convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, what, what is the Holy Spirit's ministry? A couple of big parts of the Holy Spirit's ministry is to convince us that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is not empowered on his own power to um, perform these miracles. He is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And, and then it's the Holy Spirit that convicts us to lead us to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that, that draws you to God. And, and here's what this idea says. If you reject what the Holy Spirit has done, if you're crazy enough to go, it didn't happen, or Satan did it, and you just reject the evidence, the clear evidence, it's not just this evidence here that Jesus gave. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he talks about the resurrection, he, Paul says, guys, you all know this to be true. At, at one point, he appeared to over 500 people, and you could go interview them if you'd like to. 
He's saying, if you just reject the evidence given by the Holy Spirit, and you reject the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes in your life and convicts you. And you hear the word of the Spirit, and it challenges you. And you feel yourself being drawn to God, and you turn Him down. And you feel yourself wanting to overcome sin, and you keep on. I think what he's saying here is that's what the Holy Spirit's job is. And that's when you start... Going in that direction of blaspheming the Spirit. And that brings me to number five, I think, that fits in with these last three. And number five is this. It's what I call the final answer. It's the final answer. And this is where I think it's more of an attitude. You've seen the evidence. You've felt the pull of God. But there's a final, fixed, settled decision that I reject Jesus. That's what's going on with these guys. Guys, they've seen miracle after miracle. They know what Jesus has been doing. They can't even argue with it. But they make a final decision, even in view of the evidence and Jesus trying to pull them. He loved those guys to finally, once and for all, reject Jesus. Just listen to me. This is not some kind of blind ignorance that maybe you did it and you don't remember it, you know, and, oh, I better search my life to see if maybe I said the wrong thing at some moment. This is a continual, willful rejection. It's not a one-time act. If it were, then listen to me. Don't you think Peter would be in trouble? Don't you think the apostle Paul would be in trouble? Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, that I was a blasphemer. It's not a moment, my friends. It's a persistent rejection. It's a fatal sin. There's a weird passage that goes along with this over in 1 John chapter 5, where John says there are two people who sin, and one of them you should pray for, and one of them you shouldn't pray for. Isn't that crazy? He says you should not pray for the person who has accomplished a sin, John calls, unto death. If someone has made a final, fatal rejection of Jesus, John says you don't have to pray about that one. It's the same thing. Hebrews talks about someone who's tasted the heavenly gifts, who's experienced God, who's rejected Jesus, that it becomes impossible to bring them back to repentance. It's the final answer. Understand here, I think we've got to understand this. The problem here with forgiveness is not with God's ability or willingness to forgive. Because listen, there is no record in all of Scripture of someone repenting and asking for forgiveness that God would not forgive. The problem is not in God. The problem is in the heart. So, you say, what, 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 what's this got to do with me? Here, here's, here's what it's got to do with you and me. Here's the warning of this passage. And that's what Jesus is trying to do, shake people up. There's a warning here about the danger of a hard heart. Their hearts are stubborn. The Bible talks about this a lot. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 22. There are some people whose conscience have become seared. They no longer feel guilty about anything. There are people mentioned whose hearts and Bible have become calloused. You know what a callous is? If you build a callous long enough on your hand, you can stick it with a needle and you don't feel it. You can become seared. Your heart can become calloused. If, if you have your Bible, I ran across this passage a couple of days ago. I think just says it. Acts chapter 28. Turn to Acts chapter 28 with me. And I think Paul says to some folks, you are right there. 
I think he explains exactly what it means to finally go over the edge. He quotes the prophet Isaiah in verse 26. Go to this people and say, you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and I would heal them. God says the problem with these people here is not that I wouldn't heal them and forgive them. The problem is they have gone so far. They don't listen. They don't see. They don't care. That's what the Bible says to you and I. Above all else, guard your hearts. Because the problem here, the issue here, is a heart so hardened, so calloused, so evil, that you could watch Jesus do an incredible miracle and walk away and say, the devil did it. He says, you dudes, your heart is so hard you have reached the point of no return, not because I wouldn't take you back, but because you would never come back. So let me ask you some questions this morning. How is your heart? I mean, don't, don't just read this little weird passage and go, well, it doesn't have anything to do with me. I think it does have to do something with you and me. I think we can, we can get ourselves to the point where we rejected the Father, Son, and even the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you some questions. Could you take a moment just for some introspective? How open are you to the conviction of the Holy Spirit? When you hear a sermon, how open are you to respond? I'm not saying just publicly, I'm saying but in your life. Do we listen with open hearts? How touched are you by what Jesus has done for you. As we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark and seeing all this incredible good news and see Jesus even pick a fight for us, can I ask you, are you touched? Or is it just sort of old hat? Has your heart become so callous that you can read the incredible things about Jesus and think, oh, nice little sermon. Let me just walk out here and get to lunch. How about your sin in your life? Do you feel less and less guilty about your sin? Now think about your sin struggle. Have you gotten yourself to a point where you're just seemingly okay with it? That, 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 you know, I mean, when you first did it, you know, you felt so overwhelmingly guilty. And then the next time was a little bit less and then less and less and less. And now this week you've done it. And you don't feel any guilt. Have you become comfortable with your lukewarmness? You didn't grow up this way. Your parents didn't raise you this way. You didn't come to Christ this way when you came to Christ. You were excited about Christ. You were fired up. But you've become just flat lukewarm. You know you are. And yet you've become comfortable with it. It's like, okay, I know I'm lukewarm, you know. and I know they're going to try to shake me up every once in a while. But that's just sort of the way I've lived. And, you know, I'm just going to sort of keep on this way. I'm, I, I've become comfortable. Because here's the issue I see in our culture and all across this line is we have just become so stinking cynical. We're just cynical. I mean, that's what these, these guys are so cynical. They can see what they see and not even be touched by it, not even think, wow, God's doing something. They can see a guy heal and get mad because of the timing. 
You know, so we, we live in a culture where we're cynical about our government, we're cynical about the press, we're cynical about leaders in any area, whether in business or church or you name it. We're just, we're just cynical. We're cynical about people. We really don't think people are sincere. We question everybody's motives. And guys, here's, here's what happens is this cynicism begins to build up into my life where God can do something marvelous and I'm not touched, where the scripture can have a teaching that is so grace-filled it blows me away, where I can see someone whose life has been drastically changed and it's nothing to me. I question everything. And we just start being cynical. So, so the question here in this story is, guys, for, for some of us that are, let me just say, we're, maybe we're headed in this direction. What's it going to take to get you out of your cynicism? What's it going to take to get you out of your pride? What's it going to take for your heart to become soft? I mean, how much longer are you going to say no? Here's the problem is, the more times you say no to God, the easier it becomes to say no. The more times you say yes to Satan and sin, the easier it begins to be to say yes to Satan and sin. And and the question here is, what could Jesus do to shake you up? And here's what he's trying to do here. He said, there's a sin that you can go so far that you sin against the final testimony of the Holy Spirit. It's eternal sin. And you, if you go that far, you are absolutely 100% guaranteed going to hell. Is that enough to shake you up? That's what he said. So you can keep letting yourself go in that direction? You guys, here, here's the deal. Here's what the Bible teaches. One day you might not care. But when people come to me and they're all afraid about, about sinning against the Holy Spirit, my first answer is, I think it's a good answer, I, honestly, is if you'd sinned against the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be here talking to me about it. If you still care enough to come talk to me and go, help me figure this thing out, I remember what I did 20 years ago, then you're way away from sinning against the Holy Spirit. That's not the danger zone. I, I'm not afraid about the person in here that you've questioned this and, and been concerned about that. I'd like to give you some comfort. But for some of you, they're getting to the position where you are getting comfortable with not being okay with God. I would like to shake your life up this morning. Because that's what Jesus did. Now, two more things before we sing our song. Don't miss this. Because sometimes in the middle of us freaking out about the sin of the Holy Spirit, we miss two incredible things in this passage. They're so encouraged. Number one, we miss Jesus' power to overcome the strong man. In the midst of this story, what we find out is as strong as Satan may appear, Jesus says, I have tied him up, I have bound him. Do you realize that Satan's power today is bound? That Satan cannot take over in your life without your permission. His power is bound in that Jesus said, not I have the power to bind him, I've got the power to come in and plunder his house. So please, don't miss that part. Because you might read this and go, oh my, the sky's caving, Satan's so powerful, I'm so cynical. 
Listen to me. Jesus has got the power. If you would just open your heart up a little bit, if you would open your heart up, Jesus has got the power to come into your life, to cast Satan out, to bind him, and to plunder everything that he's done in your life. Number two, Jesus' desire is to adopt you into his family. That's the story we started with. This is one of those passages where, where the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is sandwiched between Jesus' encounter with his family and his encounter with his family. And finally they come to rescue and Jesus is in this house and there's a circle of people around him and they can't get in so they send word. Your mom and your brothers and sisters are there. Come on out. And Jesus said, no way, not coming out. Let me tell you this. My mother and my brother and my sisters are those who do the will of God. Now listen to me. In context, this was very important. The Gospel of Mark was written to um, Roman Christians. Many of them, for their faith, had been thrown out of their families. And Jesus is saying, even if that has happened to you, I'm going to give you a family that I'm going to adopt you in. Now, many of us are blessed because our, our family and our spiritual family line up. We're even in the same church family. Thank God for that. Some of you, you don't have that. Your family, they don't agree with what you believe. At best, they're cynical about what you're doing. At worst, they've rejected you. And Jesus says, Let me, listen to me. Uh, not only can I come in and plunder the work of Satan in your life, but I want to adopt you into family where you will get the love and support. And so what is the, what is the choice you have today? The choice you have today is either you can say no again, say no again to God and keep walking toward that point of no return. Or you can say yes and be obedient and be adopted into his family and let Jesus' power plunder Satan's work in your life. That's your choice. So let's go back to the headline one more time. Headline, good news. One unforgivable sin. Listen to you. That is some of the best news you've ever heard. The only way for you to not go to heaven is for you to come to the point where you just finally, despite all the evidence, all the prompting, all the convicting, you finally say to God, my final decision is I reject you. You got to work pretty hard at that. Let me ask you today. Are you going to say no one more time? Or are you going to be obedient? This morning, there's some good news. God will come in and he'll defeat Satan's work in your life. He'll put you into a family where you'll get the support and love that you need to live this life. The question is, where is your heart? In the middle of this message, if you thought to yourself, my heart's become cynical. I've accepted sin in my life. is okay. I've gotten comfortable with lukewarmness. Then I'd beg you. I'd beg you in light of what Jesus said today. You need to do something. You need to do something right now before your heart gets harder. Before you get to that point where you'll never care again. If you need to do something, do it right now while we stand together and sing.